Coming up on this week's show, the next unlikely retro gaming movie has been announced. A rare Sega Pluto prototype has been fixed. And some great demo scene and PlayStation chat with Martin Iveson. This week's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. And Retro Gamer, the essential guide to classic games. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 221, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show, wherever you're checking us out. Now, obviously, it is uh, it's about a fourth week now of uh, doing this show remotely. Obviously, everybody's routine has kind of been swapped up massively over the last few weeks. And we were kind of thinking, you know, is that going to affect podcast listening because you know we had a lot of people who would often message us and be like you know it would be part of my routine on a friday morning on the drive into work or i'd listen on my phone out on my lunch break and obviously with everyone's routine being changed up now we were kind of like you know is anyone still going to listen to podcasts but actually it turns out we've been getting some messages people listening on the smart speaker in the kitchen while they're making dinner or washing up there's one guy messages in the week um lee his name was he, he was actually listening to the retro hour on friday night over a Jack Daniels and Coke on his phone after the kids went to bed playing video games. So we do appreciate that, you know, your routine might be swapped up, but thank you so much for sticking with us through these crazy times. Um, hopefully it won't be too long until we're out of it and on the other side. But even though we're doing this remotely, we have got a brilliant show lined up for you again this week. Now, Ravi, you actually recorded a great little interview the other day. Yeah, so I talked to Martin Iveson. Now, Martin Iveson started out in the demo scene back in the days and he's he's a musician he's now a, a professional composer and he was actually nuke from anarchy the demo group so aged about 17 he got a job at core designs and was creating wow. music for absolute amazing games like jaguar xj 20 uh, 220 which is just fantastic chuck rock son of chuck as well and then he went into the kind of playstation era as well so we talk all about that cd transition but also like some interesting stuff you know uh there was a little kind of hip-hop vibe on the playstation if you don't remember like the early days with prapper the rapper and stuff and he did some pretty cool hip-hop soundtracks so martin iveson is going to be our special guest he'll be on the show in around 20 minutes from now i love every week as well that joe is recording the podcast in a different room at his house where are you this week uh, I'm actually, I am in the games room today um, and my wife has uh, sacrificed her, her makeup dressing table. She's removed the mirror, she's ripped the mirror off, put it in my room. I've got a little stool and I've got the setup and actually this is better than the setup I've been doing to work from home. I've been working from home from my kitchen table. And this is actually a lot more comfortable now. So I'm thinking I might have to do this like for the rest of the week. You can now sit for extended periods. Yeah, exactly. Like last week I did it behind uh, the couch in the spare room, you know, on the floor. And uh, there was no comments about my cavernous spare room, uh, which was good. Uh, so hopefully this one, fingers crossed, though, this one's like the perfect one. Hopefully it'll sound all right. And it won't do my backing. I was thinking you'd like built a fort out of like duvets and a clothes horse or something. That was last week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got your guitar nearby as well. Yes, I have. <laughs> when we were waiting, I was uh, fiddling with that earlier on, but uh, you won't be hearing that right now. <laughs> <laughs> we're not judging, Joe. <laughs> what a bit of thrash metal on the show. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, listen, we have got some good stories to talk about this week as well. Of course, we're getting close to the release of Streets of Rage 4. Um, hopefully, we're going to have a lot more about that on next week's podcast. A little teaser there. We'll talk about some new news about that in just a minute. But before we do, let's give a huge thank you to this week's supporter, 
now obviously a lot of us are stuck indoors all the time at the moment maybe you've completely rinsed Netflix when you first go onto Netflix you look at it and you think oh there's so much on there but a lot of people have got it playing all day while they're working from home and on a night and on a weekend you very soon run out of things to watch on there well this week's show is brought to you by our very good friends at ExpressVPN now here's something that you might not know not only does ExpressVPN protect your privacy and security online but also you can use it to unlock movies and shows that are only available usually in other countries. Did you know that there are over a hundred different Netflix libraries around the world? I did not know that. I actually thought there was like seven or something. <laughs> there's over a hundred and that means there's obviously a massive selection. For example, on Netflix UK we've got stuff like Star Trek Discovery on there, Blackadder, one of the best British comedies of all time. Uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine is on Netflix Canada. Rick and Morty, you can watch on Netflix France. Uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air's on Netflix Australia. The reason is because a lot of different regions have different licensing. And with ExpressVPN, that means literally you could just go a little drop-down box on there, select the country that you want to pretend you're from, and then you can access all these libraries. And I know you've been using it heavily over the last couple of weeks, Ravi. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculously fast. It's a really good system. There's like no buffering or lag and you can stream HD. No problem. You could probably even do 4K if your uh, connection was fast enough. And it's really compatible with all your devices as well. So you can have it on your smart TV uh, just built in and then you can activate it straight away or even have it on your phone. Yeah, consoles, smart TVs, it works with pretty much everything. And it's not just Netflix as well. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service, or Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube. Now, there are hundreds of them out there, but obviously, like you said, Ravi, the, the good thing about ExpressVPN is no buffering, no lag, stream HD, no problem at all. You might be into anime, for example. You can pretend you're from Japan and go into Japanese Netflix and just be spirited away by all that. thing about it is, as well, a lot of people kind of worry, like, oh, yeah, are Netflix going to, am I going to get in trouble? They're going to ban my account. They encourage this, don't they? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's totally legit. You know, they wouldn't be advertising this without, um, you know, VPNs being approved by Netflix. Absolutely. So if you want to try it out, we've got an exclusive offer that you can check out right now. You'll be helping out the Retro Hour podcast and get to try three months of ExpressVPN for free. Watch whenever you want. Protect yourself with ExpressVPN. All you've got to do is head to expressvpn.com slash retro and get your three months of ExpressVPN for free. Expressvpn.com slash retro. And I'll put that in this week's show notes as well. Now, of course, we're really hyped about Streets of Rage 4. How long have we been talking about this on the podcast now? For? We've been talking about it. It feels like forever we've been talking yeah. about this now. And it's just like every week there's something like new, like, oh, there's a rumour this is going to happen or there's a rumour it's going to be out soon and stuff like that. And I'm just tearing my hair out. But the new trailer came out for it a couple of days ago and I'm so, so, so excited for this. Now, a bit of a background, because, Joe, you, you're like our resident Streets of Rage fat super fan aren't you it's one of your all-time yeah. favorite games yeah streets of rage is like literally all three of them some people don't really like the third one but all three of them three of my top favorite games of all time absolutely love them well what's in this latest trailer then that's got you all excited so obviously streets of rage 4 was announced a while ago now but they've announced in this latest trailer which has just blown my mind that there's all original music from streets of rage 1 and 2 featured in it which you can play around with and listen to while you're playing and then as well as that, every single character by the looks of things from every single Streets of Rage is available to play, as well as the new one. So if you want to play Axel from Streets of Rage 1, you can. If you want to play Axel from Streets of Rage 2, you can. And Streets of Rage 3. And it just like that's just blown my mind that not only is every character on there, but like every character variant. 
I don't know how it's going to be. I don't know if they're going to be available straight away, if it's going to be a case of unlocking them. I hope it's a case of unlocking them because then it gives it that kind of like replayability. But I'm super, super excited for this. And have they got some of like the old school graphics and characters in here as well it's, that I've been reading? Yeah, so by the looks of things, like if you play as like Axel from Streets of Rage 2, he'll look like what he looks like in the second one, oh, if that wow. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But then it's like they've obviously made it like a little bit like pixel perfect, so it's a little bit nicer and stuff like that. It's interesting because when I first saw it, it kind of looked a bit like a flashy game or, or kind of that. But as these trailers have come out and developed, it, it looks more and more solid. And I'm... Looking at it, I'm thinking it's like it looks like a really high end Neo Geo game to me. Yeah, yeah, that's a, I think that's a really good way of describing it. Yeah, because of like when it first kind of came out, like the first kind of few trailers and stuff, you're just like, oh, it's just got that kind of like odd modern look to it, modern retro look to it. But and I wasn't too convinced, but this, this last couple of the trailers have really got me excited for it. And you know, before I wasn't too fussed, but this last couple of months, like, in this last couple of weeks, like, it, it's just, like, now it's, like, my number one I want to play. Do you know what I mean? Now Resident Evil 3 is done. This is the next one for me. Oh, you can't shut Joe up talking about Streets of Rage 4 every day. Have we got a release date? Yeah, when's it coming out? Uh, but, I mean... I've been messaging Dan. I'm messaging him the rumours of when it's coming out and stuff. But I think, as well, the fact they've got the original graphics in there, that is a really good move because, you know, a lot of people talk, except the actual game itself, the main game, has got these kind of hand-drawn style characters, which a lot of the fans of the retro games were complaining a bit about that it didn't look quite authentic, but now having the original pixel art kind of characters in there too kind of keeps everybody happy i guess yeah i mean it, like i said it's keeping me happy yeah um you know like i say if like you said you first see it and it was a bit like that that hand-drawn a bit like the streets of rage 2 uh streets of rage 2 sorry the um a bit like a uh, street fighter 2 for the switch yeah, like yeah they had that kind of like hand-drawn graphics and it looked nice but it was kind of like it wasn't the same and that was a little bit different because obviously it was just street street fighter 2 whereas this it's like it was Streets of Rage. Like, I would have preferred that, like, kind of continuation of the graphics. But now I think they have done that by bringing, the, bringing back, the, like, the older characters and the retro characters. And the sound is so important as well with this game. You know, yeah, getting absolutely. that right. I remember that was one of the first times on the Mega Drive that people were kind of absolutely blown away with the sound. Yeah, the sound, you know, the uh, the music Streets of Rage and two, Streets of Rage 1 and 2 was just, like, system sellers for a lot of people back in the day and i think obviously from all the rumors we said we're getting close to release now as well and hopefully we're going to bring you a bit more bit of an exclusive about streets of rage 4 on next week's show can't say any more just yet but make sure you check it out <laughs> next friday now let's talk about nes games now obviously the nintendo entertainment system legend of a console and you're probably thinking no nes games inside out you probably play them a thousand if not ten thousand times now and what about this for a new spin on your favourite NES games, converting them into virtual reality. <laughs> How does this work then? So we talked about this before, and, you know, this is a lot more developed now, and it's a fantastic piece of software called uh, 3D Sen. It's a VR Nintendo emulator. But the thing about it is they've actually changed the camera angles and they've, they've made games specifically for VR. So there's over 53 titles now, and they're adding more at the time. And these all kind of support this new camera angle and this kind of fixed angle, which really makes the playing a lot better because there were early versions of this where people had just kind of directly hacked it and maybe it didn't have that angle or, or that kind of feel at the time. What I think is really cool about it is from watching the video, like like you said before, it was just kind of like you kind of moved around and stuff and it just looked a bit odd. But now it's like they've got that angle with the free and it like looks like really smooth and perfect and 3D. 
So it's like if you're playing Super Mario Bros. 3 and you kind of like turn your head and stuff, it like gives you like that perspective as well. And you can kind of see Mario running from that angle, which I think looks really cool. <laughs> and I think that is, you know, VR should be that. It should transport you into a world that's yeah. just totally unlike your own. And it doesn't get much different than that, I guess. Duck Hunt as well on it, like, <laughs> looks like... Duck Hunt is like the kind of game that was made for VR, but obviously came out like 30 years ago. But like, it looks like it plays and runs like perfectly. And it just looks like you are inside of Duck Hunt, like you're in the world of Duck Hunt. To be fair, VR is probably the closest thing a lot of us are getting to actually going out at the moment. So it is cool that they're bringing out new stuff like this. <laughs> VR Duck Hunt, the closest yeah. you can get to the real world. <laughs> well, in this article, they actually said industry-wide adoption of VR is slow moving. I, with COVID, I think it's going to be very fast moving now. <laughs> they're going to have a huge boost with lots of people sat at home, you know, exploring these titles. I think you're right there because I went to, because um, I've got one of the, I was trying to get one of the Oculus Quests. Um, I've got the the one that came out before that, the Go, I think it is. Um, but obviously the Quest has kind of got like two controllers, two hand controllers. And I thought, you know, just before we got locked down, um, I think it was like the day before PC World closed. And I was in there and I thought, I'll buy one of them, you know, just see me through the next month or so. Went in and they said literally they've moved them all. You know, there's nothing left in the shop. So I think you might be right that maybe VR will have had a bit of a an uptick over the last couple of weeks because it did kind of seem like vr was kind of slowing down a bit didn't it yeah this? yeah and now it's like essential it's cool that you can get stuff like this as well though you know i, I always think exploring games that you think you know so well in a completely new way that always kind of blows my mind a little bit so i'd be quite interested to try this out and see how well it plays actually something else has had a bit of a comeback that you might not have expected and it's something that we probably have in our cupboards gathering dust apparently we sports has had a big comeback over the last couple of weeks. You see, I've seen people like, you know, posting videos and these funny videos and stuff on, uh, on Facebook and stuff like that. And people have cracked it out while they've been like, you know, in lockdown with their parents and stuff like that. And everybody's becoming like Wii Sports Bowling professionals again, <laughs> which I absolutely love. But off the back of that, because it's had a resurgence, um, it's become more expensive on like eBay and yeah. like, you know, like secondhand websites and stuff like that, which I think is really funny. It's interesting because I used to play Wii Sports bowling anyway with our mates. That would be the only thing we could play when we were drunk. You know? <laughs> <laughs> game. Yeah. And uh, Wii, Wii Sports Club, which was for the Wii U, was actually a signed on model. Um, which was like yeah. the follow-up. So I, I don't know how many sign-ups they've probably had on that. They might be like resurgent. Suddenly they're getting all these uh, downloads on the Wii U. Probably more than likely because of um, they're saying um, the average price on this article, it was saying the average price of Wii Sports a couple of weeks ago was about $10, so about eight quid. And now all of a sudden it's more, it's more than $30. So obviously everybody's like cracking it out and buying it or cracking it out and going, oh yeah, Wii Sports, I want to play that again. Yeah. So buying Wii's on and the sport club and the sports club has online multiplayer as well so you know maybe those servers are popular again well yeah i I wonder if they're still they're still running (laughs) i had a look before we started recording today and there are actually some copies of wii sports that have gone for about 80 dollars on the american ebay yes which is not so because i mean if you've got a wii didn't it come packed in with every Wii? It did. It came yeah. packed in with every Wii. But then after a couple of years, the Wii started getting packed in with Mario Kart. Right, okay. So my Wii, for example, I got my Wii in like 2009. So it, obviously like three years later, and it was the Mario Kart one. So I didn't have Wii Sports packed in with mine. That I just sense. nicked it off my missus' parents. So <laughs> and, and, and I guess a lot of people probably lost it or whatever over the years. Yeah, because it came just in the cardboard sleeve, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. And for the sports club, you need the um, special Motion Plus controllers. So I reckon those on eBay will start to get really expensive as well. 
which is really funny because I picked up a Wii Motion Plus controller for like two pound about five years ago. <laughs> like literally, they couldn't even give them away, you know. And the little adapters as well, which you could plug into them, were like a pound or something in my local uh, retro game shop. And like you say, they're probably going to go through the roof now as well. It does make me laugh as well, you know, whenever you go into like cash converters or somewhere like that, they've generally got an area of the shop that is just dedicated to Wii boards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or you've got like 50 of them all stacked up. Again, it's the kind of thing that, you know, if you're not going outside to get an exercise and that kind of thing at the moment, everyone's kind of got probably a Wii board stashed away in the attic or a cupboard or something. So it does make sense that, you know, people are, are digging it out again. I kind of, I, I did love the bowling and stuff as well. And same same as you, Ravi. I used to play that with friends at house parties and that. I kind of lost its shine a little bit when we realised that you could just do it sitting down on the couch and just tilt the controller and it would have the same effect as standing up and doing it. But You say that, though, but the first time we ever hung out, Dan, which must have been about 11 years ago now, we went back to yours and you actually cracked out wee bowling and you were very, very drunk and you were, like, spinning on the spot after throwing it and stuff. So, you know, it probably took you a while to realise that you could do it. I'm sitting down. <laughs> I was just showing off here. Look, look at my expert bowling skills. <laughs> See, I, that I actually am really good at connect bowling, but I'm terrible at bowling in real life. So uh, it's not representative of your real-life skills, I guess. But also it's good to keep that fitness up at the moment. I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I've been eating so much at the moment and not doing that much exercise. So. Into social distance from the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> now video game movies are something that we tend to talk about quite a bit on this show and uh joe you're normally a fan of them even if no one else is what do you think of this then <laughs> dragon's lair the movie starring ryan reynolds yeah i literally just read this when you guys sent it over to me i hadn't heard a thing about this um so i was just reading the article but yeah netflix have got the rights for it haven't they yeah but apparently they've been fighting over the rights for over a year now which sounds crazy. Them, which is crazy. And they finally got them off Don Bluth, who was like the director of like, you know, he, you know, did all the animation and stuff for Dragon's Lair and did a lot of like, a lot of those Disney films, those films that you think are Disney films, but they're not, you know, from like the 80s and stuff. He was the man behind them. And he's now just agreed, like sold the rights to it to Netflix, uh, which I, I didn't know about. And then the fact that Ryan Reynolds is already connected to it as well. Like the guy loves his video game films. <laughs> like, I mean, I think it actually played Dirk quite well. He's probably got the yeah. look that would suit it, I guess. But it just seems such a random thing to yeah, resurrect. And it's weird. Like it is crazy. And like maybe it's off, you know, the popularity of Sonic the Movie, which you know seems to be like the first ever commercially successful uh, video game movie. Um, and obviously because of the coronavirus, apparently it's predicted to be the biggest grossing film of 2020. Uh, simply because it did so well just before the lockdown. Maybe it's something to do with that. But then, like I say, apparently they've been trying to get the rights for like a year. So maybe it was all off like forecasting and they were like, oh, yeah, you know, the Sonic movie might be a big thing. So we need to get something. But, but Sonic I get and I, I get Pokemon. And, you know, kids today still relate to that. It, my my six-year-old yeah. nephew, Harry, loves Sonic the Hedgehog. You know, he plays yeah, the games yeah, on his yeah. Switch and he, he watched the movie and he loved it. It wouldn't have the first clue what Dragon's Lair is, though. You know, this is a game from the early 80s. It was a Laserdisc game. It was quite yeah. niche. And that's probably why it's going to be, you know, a Netflix film rather than, like, a big cinema release. But then, with that in mind, a lot of the next Netflix films do get the budget of, like, big Hollywood yeah. movies, don't they? So, you know, and they get Hollywood actors such as Ryan Reynolds to star in them. So I bet he doesn't come cheap. I bet there's still going to be, 
you know, bloody ten million pound deal with him or something. Do you know what I mean? So it, for it, me, it's like it's like something that they found on a VHS in the eighties. You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> Dragon's Lair the movie, and I think like do you reckon they'll follow it up with Space Ace the movie or something? <laughs> you yeah. never know. That'd be amazing. It's, you heard it here first from Ravi. <laughs> it just, I mean, a lot of people have commented, you know, on the various articles that I've read that actually Dragon's Lair, it was a technological marvel when you saw it in the arcades next to like, you know, yeah. asteroids and Pac-Man. It looked really impressive. But actually, story-wise, it was a very typical, you know, guy rescues princess who's been abducted. It was that, you know, and it was only like a 15-minute animation, really. So it seems, uh, you know, it's quite a stretch to make a full length movie out of that yeah. plot does it say anything about it being live action or if it's going to be a cg or yeah, do we know sure. no idea so i mean yeah no it, it, could, it could it could just be him doing voiceover i guess but it could be yeah. it could be i've got a feeling it'll be live action though well they're saying that one of the reasons that this has kind of been back on people's radar is because it actually i didn't spot it but apparently featured in stranger things it was like kind of yeah the they play it in stranger things right. season two in the first episode yeah i've forgotten that yeah, but, yeah. Okay, well, that makes sense, you know. But it, it does seem a bit of a tenuous link. Like, let's do an entire movie on it just based off that. But <laughs> I think it's cool, though. You know, it's something yeah, I never I, I guess so. there's a lot of people in Hollywood that kind of reference that as well. You know, there'll be a lot of directors and a lot of people commissioning it that would be like, oh, yeah, Dragon's Lair. You know, and it might not have stood out for others, but because it's a kind of a film game, you know. And there is, um, I'll link this up in our show notes, and uh, it's an article on the Metro actually talking about this. But they do talk about the fact there was a crowdfunded campaign, which um, I do remember that seeing that a couple of years ago, that people that love the original games were trying to get like a full-length animated movie going, but um, I don't think the crowdfunder actually reached its target in the end. So, uh, oh, I mean, okay. this has been something over the years that, you know, people have kind of wanted, so maybe there is some demand out there for Dragon's yeah. Leather movie, so... We'll, see. we'll keep our eyes peeled. <laughs> You'll be seeing it, Joe. You always watch these... Naff video. Well, I, I am on Netflix, so I will watch it. You're, you're going to kill me, Joe. I, Why? I watched the first 10 minutes of Sonic and then turned it off. Oh, <laughs> I've still not seen it. Me and Dan were meant to go to the cinema to see it, um, and we uh, and we just never did. I just don't think we got around to it. But, I, th- oh, I, think, I think this little virus got in the way of our cinema trip, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so my little nephew's watching that. He loves it. He said it's awesome. But yeah, six. a friend of mine, uh, his his son, his five-year-old, absolutely loved it mm. and demanded to be called Sonic for the rest of the day after <laughs> seeing it. You know, was moving around the front room. So, you know, I have heard there's a lot of, like, fart jokes and stuff like that in it. So it probably is catered to the much, you know, kind of younger audience and stuff. Be that me and Joe have got the sense of humour of, like, six-year-olds, that's <laughs> Probably, uh, yeah, that's probably why. Yeah. <laughs> now, I always love it when we get news about, you know, pr- console prototypes that are finally up and running again. And um, this is actually by a guy who we had on the podcast a couple of years ago. He's kind of the king of console restoration. And this is Ben Heck. Now, he's actually repaired one of only two, I believe, known prototypes for a system called the Sega Pluto. Now, are you familiar with the Sega Pluto? Yeah, so from what I understand, the Pluto was um, a prototype in the later life of the Sega Saturn. So it's it's a Sega Saturn, um, and I think it's a cheaper, like, you know, it's like a cheaper model because the Sega Saturn actually cost a lot. The cost to build a Sega Saturn, you know, to actually manufacture it, you know, they didn't actually make that much money off, you know, manufacturing a Sega Saturn and then selling it, like, whereas the PlayStation was really cheap to manufacture. Mm. So it was a cheaper Sega Saturn, essentially, but then it had a built-in you know, built in, um, what do you call it? Not a modem, but, you know, it had built, you know, online features. Yeah, network interface. Uh, 
so it was ready to you know connect online kind of thing straight away but i don't really know the story behind it like i know a little bit more about the sega neptune which was meant to be like the freestanding 32x you mm-hmm. know well, the, which got cancelled. Well, the Pluto, yeah. I mean, apparently there's only like, I think there's only two known in the two world now. Yeah. yeah, one in Japan. And there's um, this guy who's on the video with Ben Heck uh, from America who's got it. And he actually picked it up on a flea market back in 1996, <laughs> 97, he reckons. And he went online at the time and asked, you know, kind of described it to people. And uh, they were all like, oh, it's like a, a fake Japanese clone of the Saturn. So he didn't think it was all that valuable and, you know, just kind of threw it in the cupboard, used it to play a few games and all that. And then, as he has went on, he realised what he had. So, I mean, you think about this, if there's only two in the world, and they make this point on the video, that essentially this is about half as collectible as the Nintendo PlayStation prototype. So it, yeah, it's a big deal. True. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a big deal for a find. And it was actually working, but the problem is there was a couple of little faults in it. For example, the, uh, the CD lid... And the eject button on it didn't work properly. It just stayed up all the time. And yeah. there's a couple of like little minor faults. I think one of the controller ports at the front to get it working, you had to kind of push the wire up a little bit. You know, there's like a, yeah, a dry yeah. solder joint in there. Yeah. It's fascinating yes. to look inside because like he's talking about how there's little prototype boards and, and he's actually got the little piece of board that they kind of cut out with. And they're like, you know, none of it's like officially done. It's all hand soldered on certain parts and there's all these little like hacks one wire to another place and you know it's uh still very prototypey oh it's patch cables everywhere yeah and it's like even the case it's it's a white case at the pan painted black to look like it. it's got the sega saturn logo to stamped in the middle of the cd lid um but also interestingly i mean he got it up and running he repaired those faults with it but he had a little look inside the expansion cards and like you said joe there was a network card in there suggesting yeah, yeah whether they're going to sell this with it included or make it an optional add-on but then there was another um little card that was in a sealed metal box in there and originally they thought that was going to be like a, a full motion video cartridge so you could play video yeah. cds but it turned out he opened it up and there was a hard disk in there Okay. Which they're not quite sure what it was for. It kind of looked yeah. a bit like, you know, the PlayStation 2 obviously had that hard disk and network interface. Yeah. It kind of, you know, they're looking at it like that and they, tr- they tried to get it, the hard disk up and running on Linux. It was a standard ID hard disk, but they couldn't read the contents of it. So whether it's some kind of proprietary format or the disk has died. So they're working on that at the moment to try and get the contents of that disk read. But it's interesting that they were planning on releasing a card with, you know, network cards and also a hard disk interface as well for the Saturn. So. Yeah, what I found was really interesting about it is it still had um, a cartridge spot for it for the uh, like for the extra RAM and the action replay and stuff. Yeah, for yeah. the action replay, like for some of the later games, you know, some of the Street Fighter games and King of Fighter games to help with the graphics. I thought that was interesting that they had that in there. You would have thought they might have taken the opportunity to just build one in, yeah, you know, like already into the console. So I thought that was quite interesting that it still had the slot on the back there for it. And they use a, a pound cable, which is basically one of these ones that kind of converts it to HDMI. So, like all the all the existing technology that would work on the Saturn kind of works on this as well. It, it shows like how obscure the Sega Saturn, you know, really is to like not to gamers, but to like the you know the outside world, if you will, like the real world. Because mm. like obviously the the Nintendo PlayStation got like you know proper media covered coverage, yeah. like. You know, people were really interested in it, whereas, you know, the Sega Pluto unearths <laughs> and nobody really cares that much. Like, You're right. It's a bit sad, really, isn't it? It's, yeah, it is a little bit. Yeah. Like, I, I think it's cool. I think it's really cool. But like you say, this guy's had it since like, 96 or something as well. And people are just like, oh, yeah, it's 
knockoff. And, and I guess he's not going to sell it as well. That was probably the thing no, about the uh, Nintendo PlayStation. Yeah, now will probably be a very bad time to try and spin a profit on that, I imagine. <laughs> now, speaking of Sega, I like Sonic the Hedgehog. You like it as well, Joe. Ravi, you're a partial to a bit of Sonic as well. Oh, yeah, you? yeah. I, like I, used Sonic to, I used to sit there trying to complete <laughs> Sonic in one day. Sonic 2. Love that game. And even, you know, some of the... 3D Sonic games, Sonic Adventure 1 and 2. I was a big fan of them. I thought they were decent games. And then, of you, course... You we... know what? I like Sonic Heroes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, can, I can play Sonic Heroes and enjoy it. But there is one game that is generally not all that well received. What's your opinion on Sonic 06? You know what? I've never played Sonic 06. I've never put myself through it. <laughs> just because, you know, I always heard it was so terrible. And it just looked terrible. Like... I didn't get an Xbox 360 until like 2008. And by that point, 06 is like already one of those games, which is like five pounds, you know, in the yeah. bargain binning game and stuff. And, you know, I was only like 18, 19 at the time. And I remember going in, I'd go in and try and find like really cheap games, the Xbox 360 to just try and hammer the achievements. And even then, like, I didn't really know that much about it. It just looked cheap, man, you know, just from looking at it. And it's not until a few years later, then I start seeing like, you know, YouTube videos and stuff about it. It's just awful, isn't it? Like, I love Sonic, but Sonic 06, man. He, he looks really lanky in it as well. Like, he's yeah, he's, he's not been eating. <laughs> I got that game for Christmas. Um, it would have been, obviously, Christmas 2006. It was my mum. She was like, you know, um, I, I want to get you and your brother a video game each. And yeah. uh, I was like, oh, I forgot to give her any suggestions. She's like, oh, Sonic the Hedgehog, you know, I remember them playing that when they were, when they were little, like, you know, the, the big fans of Sonic, I imagine. So she got me and my brother um, Sonic 06 for the Xbox 360. So we both got it, and I remember playing it on Christmas Day thinking, God, this is awful. And weirdly, my brother thought it was crap as well, and he gave me his copy of it. He said, oh, you can, you can have it, take it home with you. I had two copies of it. Lost them both. <laughs> They've both gone missing. And then, obviously, it's kind of got this reputation over time of being an awful game. And I spotted a copy of it in a game shop a couple of years ago for about pound fifty. And I thought, oh, you know, I'll, I'll play it again just to see if it really is that bad. I bought it. I got home and I couldn't find it anywhere. <laughs> so I've lost three <laughs> copies of that game in the last 10 years or so. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yes, yeah, really weird. But, it's that bad. It's that bad. Like, you know, the video game gods don't want you to play it. <laughs> Deleting them from existence. <laughs> but then in recent years, we've had people like AVGN has done videos on it. And now if I see it in CX or something, it generally goes for about £10 now. Oh, really? Yes, yeah, so I think it's kind of become a bit of a collectible. Well, it turns out there is one guy who's on a bit of a mission to fix all the wrongs in... Sonic 06. Now, this is a guy called Chaos X, and he's been doing this now probably for about a year, maybe maybe even a little bit longer. So the idea is that there was a lot of problems with um, the, the reboot of Sonic the Hedgehog that was meant to be kind of the first big outing on the, the Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3 when it came out. Obviously, it got really bad reviews, had a lot of problems in there as well. I remember the controls being dreadful. Stuff like the camera yeah. would just like completely go away from the action and the load times on it as well. I mean, you kind of walk to a different bit of the map and then you just hear the DVD drive grinding away for about <laughs> 60 seconds before it loaded a bit. And then if you walked off the screen and came back, it'd have to do it again. 
So, you know, you'd often get that and, and there'd be glitches all over. So this guy, what he's doing is not only is he upscaling all the graphics and re-rendering them all out, but he's going through and he's essentially fixing all the bugs and the load times and he's got it running on Unity and he's making some real big progress on this at the moment. He actually posted an updated video um, only a couple of weeks ago on his YouTube channel that I'll link up to in our show notes. But weirdly, he was only like, I think he's only about 20 years old. He never actually played the original game. He just read about it, so I think he just read about it and heard that it was a bad game and thought, oh, this would be a good project to try try my uh, game creation skills on, see if I can make it decent. So. <laughs> What's quite funny is uh, on the on the article, uh, he says Sony was rushed to release Sonic 06, which, you know, I think just kind of sums it up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but then there's like, um, there's a, a post on Reddit, which is a guy yeah. on there, he's actually trying to start a petition at the moment to get the game remade properly by... Sega, which I don't think will ever happen in a million years. I don't think that'll happen. I think they want to, you know, dead and bury that. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, probably going to get forgotten in uh, Sonic history. But the fact there is one guy who's took it under his wing to show this dog turd of a game, a little bit of love, and finally put right what was wrong with it. And I mean, I don't know. I, I, st- I didn't like the story in the game, and there's really weird bits in there as well. Everyone went on about the fact that, you know, Sonic kissed a human princess, which all just felt a little bit weird when you played the game back. But I think, you know, if he can get it up to a standard where it actually, you can play it without all the hideous game-breaking things in there, maybe I'll give it another look again if I want to put myself through it. Or maybe, like, the wettest Tuesday afternoon that I've literally got nothing else to do in the world. You'll have to let us know how it is. Yeah, I'll take a bullet for you, lads. I'll play it. (laughs) Well, you can actually download it for free, the level, so far. So, uh, if anyone does want to put themselves through it, if you've literally got nothing else to do during lockdown, I'll put that and everything else we talked about in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, if you are finding yourself a little bit, you know, time to fill at the moment, a little bit out of ideas, our good friends at Retro Gamer Magazine are back. Now, you need to check this out. Obviously, I imagine everyone who listens to our podcast knows the score with Retro Gamer Magazine. They are the only magazine that you'll find in shops dedicated to all aspects of retro gaming, giving you exclusive access to classic developers, giving you behind-the-scenes stories about those classic machines and their games libraries with expert insight every month in there. And what I love about Retro Gamer is not only do you get to revisit your favourite games of all time, but you find out things that you didn't know about them, these fascinating new facts about them. Now, in this month's issue, they talk about the most brutal console war of all time. The cover feature is about Sega versus Nintendo. Now, that was a huge war, and we've got a fantastic article here. You know, they talked to the marketing heads, they look at all the kind of strategies, but there's even a section here called Art Attack, which I found really interesting. It's like little images and kind of cartoons that kids have made and sent into magazines, and a lot of them are really like violently (laughs) kind of representing Sonic versus Mario. And, uh, you know, each kid's got their heroes here. I think there's Alex the Kid punching out Mario. (laughs) I'm one of them. <laughs> nice. It's pretty good fun. And uh, there's some other fantastic articles. So I'm looking at one about the history of Heretic, which oh, was an amazing first-person shooter. And, you know, it had loads of different kind of weapons in there that we'd never had in FPS before. I remember the magic missiles that you could fire from your hand and the arch of death when your hands would kind of all electrify. So it's a full breakdown of that. But also they talk about homebrew games in there. And there's a really cool little section about homebrew games and they're talking about a new homebrew competition and this is uh, all about fighters being created for the commodore 64 and th- they're gonna have a deadline 
which is in July. And hopefully we'll be able to see in one of the next issues, you know, all of these fighters that have been made for the Commodore 64. I love it when they do homebrew competitions like that because it's really cool to do this every month in their homebrew heroes and they kind of review like reader made games that they send in. And, you know, they're making for all the old school machines. I always look at it and I think, I need to get my finger in gear and, like, you know, finally learn how to program in, like, 68K assembly or for the 6502 or something. You've got the time now. Yeah, I still wouldn't be able to do it. (laughs) Even if I had another 30 years, I imagine, I still wouldn't be able to make a game. But, yeah. If you want to check out that and lots more as well, Retro Gamer, the essential guide to classic games, we've actually got an amazing offer on for you right now. And, honestly, this is mind-blowing how much money you can save on this right now. You can get five issues of Retro Gamer magazine for just five pounds. Now, normally, that would set you back 25 quid, but you can get it for just a fiver. That's because Future Publishing's spring sale is on right now, and you can save up to 83% on the price of your favourite magazines and get them delivered, of course, straight to your door. And as well as Retro Gamer, loads of other magazines you can pick from as well, official PlayStation, Edge, PC Gamer as well, all five for just five pounds. And of course, by doing this, you'll be helping out the Retro Hour podcast massively. All you have to do is head to this website, myfavoritemagazines.co.uk forward slash spring 209. So if you want to claim your five issues of Retro Gamer for just a fiver, don't hang about, do it right now, myfavoritemagazines.co.uk forward slash spring 209 with Retro Gamer, the essential guide to classic games. Now, every week on the show, we do a lot of retro picks. This is things that we've been playing or talking about or maybe videos we've watched. This week, Joe... You've been checking out Castlevania. Yeah, I've been playing the uh, Castlevania collection for Xbox One, uh, which was only £6. So I was like, that's a steal. I've got to get that. You get about eight games in it as well. You pretty much get every single, you know, 16-bit and 8-bit classic Castlevania game. And they're like perfect uh, emulations of the original games. And you also have the save feature in there, which is like a godsend. Because, you know, the classic Castlevania games can be a little bit tricky sometimes. Uh, so I've been playing through the NES ones and I'm going to move on to Castle, Super Castlevania 4 and work my way through it. But I've been really, really enjoying that. Wow, we've got so much free time on our hands. What I've been looking at is a platformer for the Amstrad CPC. Now, little disclaimer, I don't actually own an Amstrad CPC. What? One I've of the looking... machines you don't own, Dan? <laughs> it is. It's one of the few like old school computers that I don't actually own. Don't get me wrong. It's on my you know my hit list. I want to get one, and I've I've, all, I've come close a couple of times. Still haven't got one. But this has actually made me decide that okay, it's going to be my next purchase. Not only have we had amazing games by like the Batman Group and stuff recently, but there's one here, a platformer called Kitsune's Curse. And just the graphics on it, it's got that really vibrant colours and that amazing 8-bit kind of pixel art style. And it just looks like it plays so well. And uh, this is from a team who've got a great you know, track record of doing amazing games on the CPC. I've been watching this video over and over again thinking, all right, that looks really cool. So I think that sealed my decision that I'm going to have to get an Amstrad next. So if you have got one, I'll put a link to this game if you want to give it a download. It's called Kitsune's Curse. Just the, the quality of the games that they've been putting out on that platform recently from what I've seen. Just I didn't realise it was capable of that kind of stuff before. Uh, they've really ramped it up, haven't they? Yeah. What about you, Ravi? You've been checking out Demo Party stuff from last weekend. Yeah, so uh, Revision 2020. I don't know if you know about this, but it's a huge demo party and the idea of the demo party is that people show off their skills so they're showing off coding graphics photography absolutely everything and it's absolutely fantastic i was watching it live and there was about i'd say four thousand viewers on the live stream which is a huge number for the people uh kind of watching and if you go on to um 
YouTube and just type in Revision 2020, you'll get to the demo party section and then stuff like the photo competition. So people do their own photos. They make demos, which are kind of real-time coded graphics. And they even do it on, like, they do it on the Amiga quite a lot, but they also do it on the Mega Drive. They're, they're really trying to push these machines uh, beyond their limits. And they also do a lot of restricted stuff. So they'll do a PC 64 kilobit intro. So that's in 64 bytes, uh, kilobytes, yeah, basically. And what, what what they can do with that limited space just blows my mind. Well, they've well. got a 4K intro, which is four kilobytes. Wow. And, they, and they try and fit as much kind of info in there. And, you, you know, that's a lot smaller than a text file and with their efficient coding they can do music graphics it's just mad that's probably smaller than your mouse cursor on your screen yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh, all those i mean it was it was it all virtual i imagine last week so normally they all get together. yeah it was way. all virtual so usually they get together and there's probably thousands of people there and they all bring their computers and come from all over europe and actually all over the world but this is uh the first time they've done it virtually and uh, it, it's just fantastic to see that they've done it and uh, really exciting to watch. So we'll put all those and everything else we talked about in our show notes as well. And of course, that's the place you can go to if you'd like to support this podcast as well. Now, we do have the Patreon running at the moment. And uh, listen, thank you so much for your support, guys. We've been blown away. I mean, obviously, when all this kicked off, we thought, you know, we're probably not going to get any supporters for a while. But actually, you've just continued to show your appreciation for us doing the show every week, which really means a lot to us. And of course, the reason we're doing this is because when we can all get together again, we want to get a dedicated retro hour studio built. So not only can we do more content for you guys, increase the quality have more flexibility to get more guests on from all around the world and just ensure that this podcast has got a future really so thank you so much for supporting us everybody who comes into our patreon will of course get a mention on a future episode in the retro hour hall of fame we are trying to get through as many shouts each week as we can this week we want to say a big thank you to graham lacey john taylor adam hind bob baisley and james walker who all made donations into our Patreon. If you'd like to support us on there, you can find the link on our website at theretrohour.com. And right now, let's get into this week's guest. We're going to talk about some amazing memories, not only about the demo scene, those early days on the PlayStation as well, Tales from Core Design. Ravi interviewed the legend that is Martin Iveson, and he's next on the Retro Hour podcast. So you're listening to the Retro Hour, and I'm here with Martin Iveson. How are you doing? I'm very good, thank you very much. Excellent. And we always start the interviews with a question, and it's usually what was your first gaming experience. But I think, seeing as you're a sound guy, when did you first notice a video game soundtrack, or, or kind of just sounds from a video game? You know, I think it was I was an, a, a young teenager, probably around the, the age of thirteen, maybe even twelve or something, and I shared evenings after school and stuff with friends going around their houses etc etc and I remember my friend Lee and my friend Andrew having Delta on the Commodore 64 and we used to play with the, with the uh, mixer loader for hours on end and it was you know you had four channels of mono essentially synthesized sound and uh, yeah you could you, you had your own mixers and you, you, you mixer on screen and you could mix it it mixed the drums in and out the bass in and out and then like the the uh, arpeggiated chords in and out and the leads and stuff like that that's kind of when I realised that um, I wanted to do music rather than just in being interested in listening to it because I quite liked music. I think as a as a kid, but well, so you already had a bit of a, a kind of knowledge of uh, how music worked. Kind of, yeah. It was more 
definitely a user experience if you rather than understanding what was going on i think after that i started following I bought games for the music rather than the games, if you know what I mean. So I started following people like Tim Follin, uh, you know, Alistair, why, uh, what was his name? Alistair? Alistair Brimble. Brimble, oh my God. He was different in, in how he, he did stuff. Um, then there was Maniacs of Noise, who were my personal favourite, you know, things like that. And then, after, you know, when you, when, you, when you upgrade your computer to the Commodore Amiga and you go into the video game shops and what have you, they've got boxes of discs with people's names and addresses on and you get them home and there's some wobbly writing and vectors flying around the screen with some nice music and at the end it's got everyone's contact details. So I sent a few discs off because I'd managed to get hold of Games Music Creator, or GMC as it was called, on the, on the, on the Amiga and a couple of sample discs and kind of threw some music, if you want to call it that, together and just started meeting people like pen friends almost. That's how... That's the kind of the, the jump. It was literally a jump from having a Commodore Amiga, listening to music and video games. Uh, sorry, Commodore 64, listening to music and video games, and then jumping into the Amiga and making music almost instantly and just understanding how, you know, in fact, loading other people's modules in and understanding how they worked, learning the little bit of code that you had to put things in and how, how they could get things to swing or how you could make chords with by putting C37 would be a minor chord. So yeah, it was all very, um, I don't know, quite organic, if you know what I mean, but also I was quite addicted to it. So it was quite easy for me to get into. Well, what kind of outside influences you're having at the time? Because I, I, I read you're a fan of like Northern Soul and uh, a lot of our listeners might not know what Northern Soul is. So could you kind of... Not really. No, my, my sister used to listen to a bit of Motown and and Northern Soul, my 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 uh, my elder sister was really into heavy rock, things like Asia and Foreigner and bands like that. So I wouldn't say that I was into anything. I do remember um, when I was eleven, at the at the um, this is the first time I heard a piece of music that I liked without someone influencing it. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Uh, and I was watching Top of the Pops, and the raw band came on, and uh, it was Clouds Across the Moon. And I'm lucky enough to release that next week, actually, uh, on my wow. record label, um, remastered. But that was the first time I ever heard a piece of synthesizer music that was kind of jazz and funk mixed together. Um, and that kind of made me listen to music. That's kind of what was, I was into. And I think that's why sometimes you listen to Motown and Northern Soul and things like that, that it, was, it had elements of jazz in it, obviously, because a lot of the musicians that were playing it were jazz musicians. But... Yeah, I don't think I was into like Northern Soul as such. It was more a mixture of things based around my love of what eventually has turned out. I'm really into jazz. Okay, so you kind of had this uh, connection with demo scene groups as well. And uh, there was a lot of crack tros produced back then. And uh, kind of how did you get involved with that, like straight coming from the C64? Um, Like I said, we used to go to, say, for instance, if you go to a video game shop, um, dedicated one, not not like a supermarket that sold video games. If you went to a dedicated shop, we used to have one called Chips and one called Topsoft. So they'd have a box on the counter next to the till, and it would have um, lots of discs in it. They, they, they were free. You could take them. Um, so you used to take a couple of discs with you, and like I say, they would have people's names and addresses on. So people would send each other their skills. So if you're a, if you're a graphics artist, you would send someone from a demo scene a 
a disc full of your graphics, for instance, or if you're a coder, some of your uh, demo work, or if you're a musician, some modules and stuff like that. So that's how it how it ended up being in connection with other people around Europe, especially in Scandinavia. But uh, it was um, Dan Scott who I met first of all, um, who obviously worked at Core as well, um, and he he got a job at Core Design as a coder, um, um, and. It just is. It was all very organic, if you know what I mean. We were all very. It was all geeky back then, and there wasn't so many people on the planet, so it was a lot. Let's say, if you had a decent skill, you could get into it quite easily. It's it's really interesting because, like, you're talking about the, the the music discs and like the kind of crack scene and all of that stuff spreading around the world. It's like, um, you know, these teenagers were kind of stars all, all before social media happened, and people would be looking up to them and chatting. Yeah, I mean, we we never we weren't really into cracking games and doing crack stuff like that it was more about making demos and then flying off to norway to enter a demo competition and try try our best to win so what did your your parents think about you kind of flying off to these well i'd, I'd already left home at that point so i don't think they had a choice <laughs> <laughs> what i was doing well i actually read a interview with you when you were 17 um which was in a dismag Satanic Rites one. Uh, do you remember doing that at all? Uh, probably not. No. <laughs> well, Satanic Rites. I remember that kind of in the background. But there was it's a while ago. Right? There was there was some really funny answers, and uh, mainly you were just saying that the UK scene kind of sucked at the time, and like the international ones were uh, really popping off. So countries like Norway and uh, Denmark and stuff. Did you really look up to those guys in regards of creativity? Absolutely. They, 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 I mean, I think in England, creativity in all aspects has always had a little bit of a rough edge. Um, I remember having a conversation one, one time with somebody about pop music and about British pop music being a bit rough around the edges, whereas something from America is always like super, super polished and finished. Um, the Scandinavians have a reputation of being, you know, well presented and smart and finished off. Um, and yeah, it was always always good to work with people in Denmark and in Norway and, and the Netherlands as well, actually, which is another big, big area for it. Um, and, you know, you, like in any, like in any craft and any art you do, you always strive to do better and be better and be working with other people that are, you know, on the next level up and such. So it was always trying to be involved in the next best thing, really. I think we all wanted that. And you were kind of in anarchy um, after format. So a lot of a lot of people were saying, oh, are you the new format? And you were going, no, he's great. Oh, no, 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 no. No one could ever be Matt Simmons. He's a, he's a, he's a one in a million, that guy is. Um, he's another one. It was Matt Simmons and a guy called Bruno from Finland. Um, they, they, they were just on a different level. You know, they were making... What what is essentially very basic music sound really complicated and musical, if I may add as well, not just loops and blips and blocks and that that went on for five minutes. Their stuff really worked to listen to. I always looked up to Matt. And you, you seem to be interested in real instruments as well. Well, you were talking about a Roland JD eight hundred and uh, kind of how important was that synth to you back then? Oh, it was brilliant. I mean, I yeah, I only recently got got rid of it. I actually donated it to a synthesizer um, engineer. Uh, repairman called Kent Spong um, because it, it had just gone to the point of no return really uh, the, the memory had gone on it the screen had gone on it and everything but I used it for such a long time 
Uh, it was the first very large synthesizer I got to use, actually. Um, and I learned a lot from it. Although there was a lot of errors, uh, issues and errors inside the box, because, you know, I don't think Roland had perfected their uh, digital analog kind of thing at the time. But it was a really, really amazing keyboard. Um, it, it, you know, you could, it, with it being controlled with sliders and things like that and had a sort of analog brain controlling the digital inside, you could get different sounds of it all the time. And that's what I loved about it. How did you go about trying to create like real instrument sounds and uh, musical sounds, especially with the hardware limitations in place at the time? I'm not really sure that I tried to make so many real instrument sounds. I wasn't, I'm not a very traditional music person, I'll be honest. Um, I like, I like sound and I I think I, I excelled in sound design rather than music personally. It's um, for, for me, I, I quite like the synthesizer element of it. I, I, I prefer experimentation. I, I've never been a person to sit down and just play a song on a piano. For one, I can't read music. Well, that's it. I can't read music, so I can't just sit down and blast out a tune. I have to sit and work with sounds and figure my own way through the, the, the song I'm making to today. You know, I've been doing this for a very long time. I've been releasing my own records since 1995 and, you know, I still can't read a dot of music. So I think for me that making the traditional noises, I mean, I knew what a bass sounded like and a piano and a guitar and drums and what have you. And yes, they were used in there, but they were kind of, you know, semi set up for you in these keyboards. You mentioned how you got work for core and what kind of age were you when you first started working with them and what was the culture like then? Um, I was 17, actually. I got a telephone call from Dan to say that um, that Matt had turned down the job to work in-house at Core Design. They needed they needed someone in-house because the team had grown. And it wasn't just like one game a year. It was, you know, they were working on multiple projects, so they needed someone on site. And Matt didn't want the job, so uh, I, I got called up and I turned up and when I was 17 on September the 16th, it was in 1991 I remember it and uh slept on Dan's floor for a week while they put me through the uh, paces I mean you know looking back I actually really really loved being involved in video games back then there was no pressure to have a triple a title and stuff so everyone was making games that they thought were really good fun to play uh that sounded fun to play and looked fun to play so yeah, it was a really, really nice time. You know, everyone was quite relaxed. The teams were all they were quite small, and everyone got on with each other. And everyone went out for a beer at lunch on a Friday. You know, it was a really, really great atmosphere. And obviously, when you're you're under twenty years old and you've left home and you're surrounded by loads of people you look up to, and you're going to the pub and stuff, you, you, you <laughs> life's great, isn't it? You know. Yeah. And uh, you said, so did you move to the Midlands around that period? I did. I moved straight away. Yeah. I mean, I went home after my interviews. For uh, I stayed for a week and had my interviews and then I went home for about a week and then that was it. I moved to Derby. And all the kind of raves were popping off at that kind of period. Did you uh, have much fun going out and can you remember much of that? Yeah. Well, I, I didn't actually go to the, to the free parties much. Only, only after I started releasing music as that jazz did I bother jumping in the back of people's cars at one o'clock in the morning to go and see what was going on in a field. So it wasn't really my scene, to be honest. And I think, you know, by that time, when I was about nine, 18, 19, 19, 20, I got into DJing. So I just spent all my time at home spinning records and learning to scratch and things like that. And then I got into, you know, collecting keyboards and making music at home. And I got a computer and Atari ST and started making music, essentially. And that's that's... I was, I've just been locked in ever since, really. I've never been, never one 
I love going to the pub with friends and having beers and stuff, but I've never been one for going to a club and, you know, raving all night. I, I don't even like record shopping. I just, you know, <laughs> music to me is like me sat in front of the computer in the studio and generating stuff. Well, what was your kind of first project for Core? Was it Heimdall? And- it was, it was Heimdall, yeah. Um, and that was really interesting because although we were working on a, on the Amiga and the PC at the time, we, I was limited to like three channels of music. So rather than having the four mono channels on a Commodore Amiga, we were down to three uh, because we needed to leave one channel for incidental sound effects. So that was a bit of a struggle. Also, you know, working, trying to make music that sounded, let's say, epic, which looking back and I have listened to it recently, it doesn't sound epic at all. It, it's in, in 35, 45 kilobytes is, is a task in itself, you know, because back then you didn't really have a lot of space on a disc. You know, maybe games came on two or three discs back then to fit everything on, but there was this, the limitations on on the actual size of data was was really harsh back in the day. But we made it work, you know. And uh, Jaguar XJ twenty two was absolutely fantastic soundtrack. A lot of games kind of have that have that fixed soundtrack to a level where this had that kind of jukeboxy vibe. Did you did you like working in this way? Yeah, it was myself and Jason G and Mac Avery at the time. Um, and we talked about, you know, games like Outrun and what have you in, in the in the arcades and how, you know, you could choose your music before you started your level, as in what what kind of atmosphere do you want to create, a funky atmosphere, or do you want something that's a bit rocky, or do you want something that's a bit dreamy and a bit jazzy or whatever. So we, we left that option open, really, for people to decide what they wanted to listen to while they played their level. You know, otherwise, yeah, you like to say it's a bit fixed and it gets a little bit samey. And I think, you know, if you're playing the first level and, you know, so you're not as, you know, I wasn't very good at gaming, to be honest. So I, I used to take me ages to get through the levels. Um, so I'd play the same levels over and over again and I'd, I'd definitely get incredibly bored of my own music listening to it over and over again. So it's quite nice to be able to change it. And it's kind of like um, Grand Theft Auto and games like that have radios on them now and, it's kind of standard in sandbox games, but that's like a really, really early version of it. It was a really early version. And again, the, the music was squished into three channels and it was tiny. You know, I think that the biggest, I can't even remember how much the, how the size of the biggest mod was. Um, it wasn't big because we didn't have a lot of space, but um, we used to have, we had to leave one channel free for the engine noise. So, you know, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a tough time. But again, we, we all worked so, you know, we worked in the, in the next room to each other. So I could go in and I could sit and play the game for half an hour and get a feel for, you know, another style of music that would go with that level as well. So, yeah, you know, yeah, it was, it was all very strange, to be honest, but it was, it was natural at the time. And it's an absolutely stunning soundtrack as well. You must have um, kind of worked on getting that pace in there and that uh, feel of speed. Yeah, it, you know what it was, I think... I started on it. I, I don't think I ever, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I don't think I ever pleased powers that be with my music um, because, I, like I say, I like to experiment and I don't like to follow trends. I don't like to you know, do what people expect. So um, everyone cited, you know, Fleetwood Mac uh, song that they used to use on TV and with a bass line and think, oh, you know, do something like that. So I did something with a bass line, but I could just never make it simple. I, I, it bored uh, music really bores me so i've got to do things that are keeping my brain excited <laughs> if you know what i mean so even from like an early age to now it's it, i still have to do stuff that keeps me excited and interested 
But I appreciate that. It's, you know, it was a, it, at the time it felt really good. But listening back, you know, we could always be doing improvements. But, you know, that was a very long time ago. You know, 28 years ago, whenever it was, 20, what, 26 years ago, something like that. Well, um, 1992 seemed to be a really busy one as well with like Agony, Curse of Enchantia, Premier and Wolfchild. And what, what would you remember about these titles? Well, Agony was a funny one because Agony I did before I actually got them, my job at Core because there was a few of us that did music for Agony. They used a few people from around the world to to like submit songs for it. So I think I remember doing just one level of Agony, as I remember. And then, yeah, Wolfchild was, Wolfchild was really good fun, actually. Had a good, we had a really good time making that game. I liked platform games that were a bit more grown up. And we, we tried our best to do something a little bit more interesting, you know, bit, something a bit Contra-esque. But, um, you know, our teams were tiny. You know, we had limited time, limited uh, resources, and we, we did what we could. But Wolfchild was really good fun. And when the kind of focus, uh, the focus was mainly on Amiga before, but then it kind of started to change into like Mega Drive as well. And there was lots of ports coming out. Did that uh, add any challenges? It did, considering that, you know, I think when you're talking, when was it now? It would have been the first time I had to use MIDI equipment would have been for Wonder Dog. Uh, Yeah. If you remember that. So that's probably about 93, 94. I think I think it might be yeah it's, it's quite early on because I remember I was only in I was in the second room at Core Design that I ever had uh, and it was quite early days but I remember um, a chap called Kev that worked there had a couple of keyboards he set up in my room for me and all of a sudden I had an Atari ST and cables MIDI cables and real synthesizers that were controlled by a computer and a DAP machine. And I was like, whoa, what's all this? <laughs> like, where's my computer screen uh, that I can just type numbers in on? Yeah, uh, that that was a challenge. It was a challenge to do one dog because it was, um, as far as I remember, I didn't even have the JD800 at that point. Or maybe I did. I can't re- really remember. But um, I had a Poly 800 and I was using a CS5, which didn't even have MIDI, which is a Yamaha analog synth, and an Atari ST. In fact, I think I did have the JD under because that's what the drums came off. So it was very, it was that was a challenge. I, there was a steep learning curve, and I had to learn it really quickly how to do music over MIDI, and I, learning a new software as well. You know, learning Steinberg Twenty Four, which later became Cubase. So and that and that was coming straight from the trackers, then straight from these digital screens to like kind of playing with the uh, keyboards and all of the typing wires, numbers in. Yeah. T- typing numbers in was was my. You know, I could go to, to work in the morning and do five, ten songs a day. But this was really different. You know, you you had to work out that computer wasn't making a noise. That was the big thing. It was everything else was. So I had a mixing desk and it was just like, whoa, what is this? This, 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 what are these wires things? Uh, All those <laughs> knobs, it, what am I going to do? Yeah, <laughs> it was a pair of speakers and then the Commodore Amiga before. Um, and then all of a sudden, yeah, you know, thrust into the world of MIDI and uh, recording onto tape. So that was just bizarre. Well, during that period as well, it was um, like Chuck Rock 2 as well, Son of Chuck, uh, mm-hmm. Blastar and Dartmere as well. I enjoyed Blastar as well. That was actually working with two two Scandinavian friends, Soren and, and uh, Jakob. Was, that was really, really, really good. We enjoyed doing that. But yeah, Chuck Rock 2, I actually really enjoyed doing the soundtrack with, for Chuck Rock 2. We, we 
we attempted to, you know, borrow a few ideas from, I think, what, what was it? That was it a Mickey Mouse game. I think it was on the, on the, on the SNES, um, where for instance, wind, and you've just got a very, very, very tiny loop of noise. Like it was actually done in the tracker actually for the Amiga. Um, and it was one channel was taken up by background sound effects, two channels for music, which was really difficult. And then one channel for the incidental sound effects. But you just um, loop the noise, start it off, and then just change the pitch over the over the patterns. So you'd have a, a, a low volume wind, changing wind sound in the background. Um, we did that with uh, up inside the tree and the creaking of the tree and then ghosts and all sorts of things. It was actually really interesting to do, do Chuck Rock too. And obviously, uh, I'm to jump in the shoes of Matt Simmons, who did Chuck Rock. So I had to do something that was, a, you know, interesting. Later on with the Mega CD, you were you were improving the soundtracks, but uh, here because it was going onto the Mega Drive, you were probably reducing the soundtracks, right, or trying to get that atmosphere um, that the Amiga sound had on the Mega Drive. Kind of, but that was Nathan had joined Core at this point, and that was a real godsend because Nathan was also a coder, so he wrote his own software for the for our Mega Drive ports, and he, you know, I think one of the best soundtracks ever to come out of Core Design was his Asterix soundtrack. It was absolutely amazing, uh, and he wrote the software to make the music. <laughs> so, so he was controlling an FM chip inside of a Mega Drive with his own software and writing the music at the same time. It's absolutely amazing stuff. Wow. Um, you know, technically, I think his best work, but that's just because I know how much hard work he put into it. So I would, for instance, be, be making music on the MIDI equipment for, say, Chuck Rock 2 for the Mega CD, uh, in fact, it was BC Races. I'm going, going, changing again there. BC Races, for instance, had a soundtrack, and then um, Chuck Rock Two would have been ported from the modules to the Mega Drive. So he, well, he did the majority of, well, he did all of it actually, all of the Mega Drive stuff, and he was a ninja at it as well. And it was, it was kind of like um, when you were going up to later stuff like the CD-ROM soundtracks. It was like you were revamping the older tunes or kind of bringing new life into them. Yeah, well, we have to because, you know, we, we could. I mean, the, there was still the option of, especially with things like like the Mega Drive, they could still use the internal um, FM music chip as well. Hmm. So you didn't have to rely on the CD for the music, if you know what I mean. You know, I don't think we ever took that into consideration. It was either one or the other. And we, we kind of opted for, um, if you remember Soul Star, yeah, yeah. Uh, what Nathan did on that was really amazing as well, considering it was made on... I think it was made on like something like a D five and an O one W keyboard or something like that. I can't remember, but he had very very little kit, but he made that sound absolutely brilliant as well. It was it was strange the way that it, it, the way I remember it now. Everything changed so quickly because you know in that in that very short period of time, we went from doing games on the Commodore Amiga and PC to essentially what were like the next generation of machines, which were the CD based. Um, consoles in such a like short time scale of like three or four years and starting to to get into that point almost not enough time to learn how to do it all so it's a, it's a bit of a minefield in my brain to remember it all uh, it's quite exciting to remember things like that well in those early kind of cd-rom soundtrack days were there any technical limitations still in place the stuff wasn't developed you know well again it was only you know it was only the, the amount of space you had on the CD, really. It, you, there, there was obviously room for the program itself. And as the program was running, then it would use the CD to play the music from as well. So it depends on how big, how much room you had left after the 
program as an artist to jammed all their stuff onto it. Um, it was relatively quite a lot, as I remember, because you know the, the the graphics and the and the code didn't take up that much space at the time. But um, so there was quite a lot of space left for music. It was quite a lot of freedom to how much um, space we had on those CDs and how much music time we could squeeze on them. That's for sure. And how how did you go about um, collecting your samples, or, or what were your sources? Well, we had um, we had a bit samplers stuck in the back of our Commodore Amigas. So, well, I did anyway. Uh, so you you would I can't remember what it was called now, but it would literally go into the serial port on the back of the Commodore Amiga. It would have MIDI in and out, which never got used. Those ports never got touched, and it would have audio in, um, so you could sample in. So if you had a keyboard, you could sample a sound in, and then you would edit it inside of uh, Noise Tracker, uh, trim the front off, for instance. Then you could save that sound to your disc along with your other stuff. Uh, so a lot of the sounds that we got were either you used to get these sample discs called SD, I think SD1 and SD2 and things like that, um, which had, you know, basic sound sets of samples, which everyone owned. Then, um, yeah, there's a lot of people, you know, sampling from CD uh, into the Commodore Amigas in order to kind of get a nice sample of a chord or a piano or something. And we all did that. And then there was sampling, trying to sample drum samples taking things from the things like the JD-800, sampling bass notes and stuff like that into it. But again, you're, you're limited to sa- uh, to size on, on the Amiga, so you could only have tiny samples, you know. You could make huge modules, but they were never going to be used in anything, you know. They were never going to be used in the game because there's just not enough room to pack them onto discs. Did you end up kind of doing CD versions of uh, soundtracks like uh, Bubba and Sticks, and then there was a Jaguar XJ220, like a new version? And was there much pressure to perform with those as well? Again, not really. I think it was more trying to port them over somehow. But again, I, you know, I can't really remember how we did it, whether it was the same soundtrack on the Mega CD versions or whether we decided, you know, what, why, why copy something that's so low bit, low fi and low bit, and why don't we take it that extra bit further? Um, definitely when it came, you know, I think at this point you're talking about a crossover as well because at some point, those modules and stuff like that, they, they just went away. Um, and we were only doing the, the, the CD music, you know, the, the, the recorded music. So it was, you know, I'm not sure it was fully like try and copy what we did on the limited version and make it more. It was more, well, we can do more. Why don't we just do new music, make it more interesting. And uh, what was it like when more powerful kind of software started to come out, like the uh, Sega Saturn and you were doing uh, stuff like uh, Firestorm Thunderhawk? Again, it was all just CD. So we, with, um, what was it now? The first one came up, I think one of the first ones we did on that with Mac and Jason was Battle Core, which was like an Ed 209 vibe, monstery machine thing going around trying to save a world. And it was, again, it was recorded music. So it was myself making music within um, Cubase on the Atari ST with the equipment. I think at this point I probably had a Roland sampler I was taking the drum samples from. Definitely had a couple of more keyboards and also a guy called Anthony Wilden who did all the guitars. He used to come and he actually used to play the guitars live because we had no multi-tracking software or hardware at that point to do that. So he would just have to uh, get his chops really really well oiled and come in and play really long guitar solos and get nothing wrong no pressure at all so um it was yeah i think with the saturn i can't really remember i think because all of these machines were you know cd based i think that they shared the they shared the music the same it was the same music on all the different devices as i remember 
we used to sample things like um, if you played a guitar, like a, a loop, like a with a wah pedal, or just do, playing some rhythm guitar. We used to sample it into the into the S750 sampler and just play it like a keyboard. So it was just playing out of one of the sampler outputs as a loop, and then he would literally play over the top of it, like live, totally live. Poor guy. Well, at this time as well, like Tomb Raider was kicking off and uh, really getting big, and you were involved doing like many of the sound effects and stuff. Yeah, um, so we'd done quite a lot of, um, let's say, more complicated games at this point anyway, and then Toby, we had a meeting. I remember Toby God coming up with his ideas, and um, I actually was very lucky to spend time with Toby at his apartment, and he really showed me all of the, all the sketches for Laura Croft and his ideas and stuff. I remember the meeting and us just going forward with this kind of Raiders of the Lost Ark but with a, a lady with large breasts um, and guns. And, you know, we, we thought it was just going to be yet another game. Um, Nathan came up with that lovely theme um, for Tomb Raider, obviously, that's become really famous now. And I was, I think I was in charge of the sound effects on Tomb Raider 1. As far, as far as I remember. And again, it was because we were, it's such a steep learning curve, all of these things. It wasn't like we had time to really develop how we were going to do things. It was more, here you go, get that done. We've got this much time. Okay, right then, let's, let's, let's do our best of what we can do. So again, you know, you, even with Tomb Raider, because as I remember, we still have limitations on, on size of, of banks of sounds and stuff, especially in memory on the PC and what have you at the time. And, um, so you, it's quite difficult because Tomb Raider had a lot of sound effects in it. Definitely the most amount of sound effects that we've that we'd ever used in a game before. So it was a, ma- a matter of trying to work out techniques of how to get all of those sounds in, but get them sounding bright and clear as well. And I do remember uh, me having overlay overlay sounds, and this is where what, what really interested me about sound design is that you know when you pitch something up, it becomes. A bright, it, it goes up the um, frequency range and becomes essentially brighter if it has noise on it or whatever. So I used to have these extra noises that were pitched up and we used to layer them over the top of things. So if something was quite um, a clunky sound but we didn't have enough memory for it, it would have to be downsampled or it would have to be pitched down to make it sound and essentially it's the same thing as downsampling. So we'd put brighter, smaller noises over the top of them to make them sound brighter. So again, it was another challenge that got we got slapped in the face with and, and we didn't have a dedicated person looking after the um, engineering of the of the sound engine within the game either. It was just that the coder was doing that as well. So it was it was quite difficult to do that after doing, especially the pressure that came with Tomb Raider. Because as soon as, as soon as the word got out that this Tomb Raider was being made, the magazines went crazy for it, and uh, it had to be good. Um, so it was, it was a lot of pressure to to switch from doing decent titles to what is essentially these days called the triple a title in the end the pressures came with it but um i do remember nathan writing that music and it was like you know that it was the next level up really he 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 raised the bar uh in the building for soundtracks for sure well uh one game that was kind of totally different to the usual soundtracks you did was a uh, shell shock and it had some awesome hip-hop and that even got a vinyl release right it did get a vinyl release yeah yeah, kind of, kind of. What was the brief behind that? And had you done any hip hop before? Um, I was actually a DJ at the time. Yeah, and I was I was a hip hop DJ. So it's you know I had all the tunes and I had the, I understood the kind of method behind it. 
but also I couldn't just make hip hop. I had to make it sound a bit gamey as well, you know. So again, it was just a crew of people, you know, shell shock crew of you know people. It was a bit like the A Team, really, <laughs> but if you want slightly cooler. And uh, we just needed something a bit raw to go with it, and so we decided upon maybe just hinting on hip hop along with what we had. Um, so we didn't really want to, like I say, go out all like let's do a. You know, loads of like classic breaks and hip hop stuff. It was more make it sound like hip hop, but it still has to fit in the game. It still needs to feel like you're playing a video game. Not many people kind of think about like the PlayStation One and the hip hop, but if you think about it, there was a lot of there was even a DJ game where you could create it. There was like Prapper the Rapper, mm-hmm. and you know there was a little kind of culture about it. There was, yeah. I, mean, I think it's because the music just kicked off back then as well. It was it was apart from when it first came in. I think hip hop was really like coming through again then really coming through again so yeah it was maybe just a trend you know well the big kind of uh last one of the last projects was uh project eden um mm. uh, for core what what did you think of that project and uh, did you enjoy doing it oh i loved that that was one of my favorites um i loved the the idea of it being set in the future and essentially ground level was um you know nothing much going on down there and the higher up you got was you know the people at the top were the people at the top and the people at the bottom were the people at the bottom so i did enjoy that the soundtrack for eden as well was that was quite well thought out we had um transitions for the music and things like that so you know one piece of music was basically four pieces of music you'd have your atmospherics with a little bit of music for your kind of you know you're searching you're you're working out the plot you're trying to get figure out what to do next you know you're you're, you're quizzing kind of background sound effects then you'd have you'd have the other track playing exactly the same time and it would be it would be muted and then you'd have a transition up and then the other other uh, track would become audible and the original track would become muted just so everything was completely in time um we used that on a few on a few games actually that technique that that worked really well i enjoyed doing that it was quite nice doing doing the sound effects for the robot character like the cyborg kind of robot robot character and the footsteps different um textures they walked on it so it kind of went hand in hand with tomb raider the way we were working with stuff and you know just trying to get the best out of very very like limited space again you know because you know you couldn't just go hell for leather and go oh it doesn't matter how big these sound effects are going to be there was still a massive limitation on yeah although it wasn't you know 50k but it would have been something like you know you've got one and a half meg to do your to do all the sound effects in which again isn't actually quite it's not a lot of space so, um, you know, I really enjoyed Project Eden. Um, I enjoyed doing all, we had cut scenes and like, like Tomb Raider. So we had little video snips, little cutaways and stuff like that, where you could, you could actually really, you know, load that song into Cubase, uh, load that video into Cubase, sorry, and, and write a piece of purposeful soundtrack over it where things you know, happened at the right point. Uh, add reverb to it make things sound like they're meant to be in the right space so yeah it was really nice that was and we and at that point like i say we'd we'd done tomb raider um we may have even done tomb raider 3 at that point i think actually before eden came out and it it, um so the the ground ground was laid down for us so we knew what we were doing a little bit more like a bit of time to research how to do something rather than like say you know when tomb raider came along it was a bit of a slap in the face here you go you've got to do this now it's really different well, throughout this, you had uh, been DJing and producing as well, and uh, you've produced some absolutely stunning music. Um, uh, your name's At Jazz. 
Yes. Yeah. Uh, could you tell us more about this and how your how our listeners can get hold of some of your music? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it was around, I think it was 1993, I started DJing and I just really enjoyed it. And it was myself and Dan and Alex and Bob and we're all, we're all friends from Core Design. And we just shared the same love of music, really, but hip hop and house and stuff. And I just, being the musician, I kind of took maybe the lead in what everyone was doing. But everyone had DJ jobs at this point at night because we liked going out and performing music for people in the in the bars and clubs and stuff. And I got a residency doing the back room at Progress in Derby um, with my friend Rob Webster. And then I got residency in a bar next door and then started my own night which didn't last long, but it was there. And throughout all of this, in the background, I'm still writing, I've got my little setup at home, I'm still writing music. And I wrote a couple of like EPs, maybe six songs or something. And Anthony, guitar player friend of mine at the time said, why don't you send some of this stuff off? And I was like, nah, it's not good enough. It's just not good enough. I sent it off and it got signed the next week by DIY in Nottingham. So um, I was really lucky that that just happened just happened as it did and the record did really well and then I thought well if these guys can run a record label surely I can run a record label so I started the record label as a bit of a hobby uh, and it went from there really bit by bit releasing albums albums get promoted you get generally a little bit more well known and your music gets spread around quite quite heftily and it's available in record shops and cd shops but yeah I mean that was 25 years ago it's my 25th year is at jazz now so I've been I've recorded over a thousand pieces of music in my time as as at jazz so it's yeah there's a lot lot to do but yes yeah, it's, it's you can get the music any it's on all the streaming platforms on my label at jazz record company or you can you can find um stuff on yoruba records or lazy days um i've worked on some remixes for louis vegas label uh remixes for omar and people like that so it's you know it, there's it, you can't miss me just type at jazz into google i'm sure you'll you'll find some stuff you like. And I reckon a lot of our listeners will like it, especially if they've heard your old soundtracks. Uh, there's still a lot of kind of similar styles. I love it. Yeah, you know, it's all electronic. It's all electronic experimentation at the end of the day. There's going to be similarities. And, you know, definitely in the in the Dubia deep, deep House stuff, there's, you know, it's loopy like it, like it used to be. You know, I grew up on making loops. At the moment, I, I look after five record labels. I have 72 artists that I account to. I normally am traveling around the world, but not currently. No one's traveling anywhere at the minute, are they? I'm busy. I mean, I've just been in the studio today. I've just mastered four of seven releases for the label. The label's got about 30 releases ahead of it. Yeah, so it's it's nonstop. But the thing is, you know, I think a lot of people in the music industry, and not everybody, but a lot of people in the music industry release records and then expect people to come and jump on them and they sit back and get paid and it's not that you know it's the same as any job you've got to go to work in the morning and work hard and hopefully you get paid at the end of the month but you know I'm very lucky I'm fortunate to be able to do what I, I love as a job that's for sure I'm uh, you know I'm not involved in computer game music anymore but I'm still in touch with my colleagues Nathan my, my then colleagues Nathan and Peter so they keep me in the loop by me keeping an eye on them and I've recently actually just um well, I've been involved in helping remaster the music from Tomb Raider 4, 5, and 6 as well, um, because with Tomb Raider 6, obviously, it's half of my composition, so as if, uh, I wanted to be involved in it. So, you know, I've got a, a very, very... I've got a fingernail in it still. That's about it. But um, it's just for me that the, the, the industry changed so much that I needed to do something different that was a little bit more fulfilling, that's for sure. 
Awesome. Well, thanks so much for talking to us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me.